Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic and I'm Royville Brown, uh, where today we're going to delve into stories and discussions as opposed to the politics from one side of Atlantic from the perspective of the other. And you know what? Today, as always in Oakland and California, the sun is out, the sky is blue. In this episode, we're exploring the pivotal and deeply challenging, a deeply challenging chapter of American recent history. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to Marshall Poe, an author of the thought-provoking new book, The Reality of the My Lai Massacre and the Myth of the Vietnam War. This book is more than just a recounting of events. It delves into the deeper aspects of human nature and conflict. Marshall is an American historian, writer, and editor, and the founder of the New Books Network. He's a somewhat of a seasoned academic. He's taught at Harvard and Columbia and is renowned for his extensive work on Russian history and his insightful commentary on communications and media. In his latest book, Marshall sheds light on why soldiers may lose control in the heat of battle. The complex issue of collective guilt and how these factors contributes to our understanding of outrage in the context of war. His insights offer a new lens through which we can view not only the Vietnam War, but also how we perceive and react to conflicts in the modern world. Saigon was alive with a festive spirit and everyone prepared for the test Lunar New Year. 
For the people of Vietnam, Tet is both a joyous and sacred time of the year. The Tet Truce, proposed by the communist North Vietnamese, seemed to promise the people a safe holiday, free from the ever-present anxiety of war. At the temples, the people gathered to pay respect to their ancestors. On the eve of the new year, thousands of Saigon families prayed before the altars of their ancestors. They prayed that peace might be restored to their homeland. This year, however, the traditional firecrackers of the Tet celebration became the fireworks of war. The Viet Cong, taking advantage of the noisy celebration, launched a savage attack on Saigon, violating the truth they themselves had proposed. Marshall, how are you today? I'm very well. I didn't know you were in Oakland. <laughs> I used to live in the Bay Area. <laughs> oh, where, whereabouts? I lived in Berkeley. I went to a graduate school there. Ah, three miles up the road. Three miles yep, up the road. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I used to go to Oakland Chinatown to get chow fun. <laughs> I was there. I had a wonderful Vietnamese meal just, what, three, four weeks ago. Yeah, there you go. Marshall, why the book and why the book now? It's a good question because all of my training is in Russian history, and then I wrote a book on the history of communications, so it's a departure for me. I wrote the book for several reasons. One was I was born on an oh. army base. My dad was in the army in Huntsville, Alabama, Redstone Arsenal, and my uncle was a fighter bomber, bomber pilot in Vietnam. And uh, I'd always been curious about the My Lai Massacre. I had read about it in high school, and I, I wondered how people like my father and my uncle could do something like this. So in that sense, it was a kind of a personal story. Uh, and then I was really looking for a book topic. And so this presented itself um, it, it, really because what I discovered was there's a tremendous amount of documentation about it that had not really been explored by historians, at least the way that I thought it should be. And I was able to gain access to this information. There are 18,000 pages of interviews with participants in the massacre. The army conducted a huge investigation of the massacre in 1970. And they also collected 5,000 pages of official documents. So for a historian, this is just a treasure trove that allows you to really get into the weeds about uh, why it happened. And that's what I try to do in the book, or at least in the first half of the book, is explain why it happened. Why do you think, though, that America needs the book now? Hasn't the Vietnam War somewhat been relegated? It's a war which America obviously loses. Its participation is somewhat inglorious. And there is not one but two Iraq wars, an invasion of Afghanistan, which have um, come after that which maybe shapes American geopolitical sensibilities much more than this conflict. So why Vietnam? Why now? My interest as a historian was very narrow, and it was simply to, to, to find out Marshall? why this happened. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, oh, so you know what? I, I don't know why this is happening, and I'm going to say that it's on my end. But y you keep on freezing. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stop this recording. Yeah, I, I would say that just as a historian, my interest in studying it was really quite narrow, and it had to do with why exactly the My Lai Massacre happened. And I can say a lot about what people have thought concerning why it happened and why I think that a lot of that is, while not entirely wrong, it does have contemporary relevance because, as you pointed out, the United States is still in the business of invading other countries. And we get ourselves involved in what we call, in a kind of a fancy sense, wars of counterinsurgency. 
We did it in Afghanistan. We did it in Iraq twice. There are American troops in Syria today. And when you're involved in what they call a war of counterinsurgency, the risk of this kind of thing happening is obviously heightened. People tend to think of military conflicts in terms of World War II, which is much better known. And these were large unit uh, battles. They were not wars of counterinsurgency. There was the German army and the American army and the British army and the Russian army. These wars are quite different. And in the book, I frame the Vietnam conflict a little bit differently than other people have who have talked about it as a guerrilla war or a war of counterinsurgency. From what I was able to discover in the documents is that from the perspective of the soldiers themselves, it was really a war of occupation. And I can talk a little bit about that if you'd like. It was not exactly a war of of counterinsurgency. Utterly go for it, because I think to your point, to the casual observer looking at conflicts, historical conflicts, we, we, we think of them as invasions and with tank formations. But this, as you said, was completely and utterly very different. So, yeah, let's go with, with your framing and let's give us the, the setup to what's going to happen on March the 16th, 1968. Sure. Since World War II, and probably before, I know more about World War II, various what I would call great powers have become involved in what they call wars of counterinsurgency or guerrilla wars. And these are quite different than World War II or World War One. What they almost always involve, no matter what we call them, is sending a reasonably large number of troops to a foreign country and then creating I hate to use this word, but like safe spaces for them. And they're called fire bases. And what you do is you put your soldiers in these fire bases because that's where they can be safe. And the United States did this all over Vietnam. Um, And the people that committed the Mille massacre were in such a fire base. They went out of it to commit the massacre. These fire bases are very important because they give the soldiers a safe place to be. And then what happens is they leave the fire base in order to basically go hunting. And who do they hunt for? They hunt for what are called counterinsurgents. How do you identify a counterinsurgent? This turns out to be very difficult, especially in the contents, again, of what I call a war of occupation. If you invade someone's country, which is essentially what these people did, or what the Americans did in this case, or the British in Malaysia, or the French in Algeria, the local population is not going to be happy about that. They might be communist. They might not be communist. It doesn't really matter. What they want to know is why you are in their country. And I think intuitively we can understand this. And so what the soldiers at My Lai found was that the entire population of this particular district of Vietnam, Quang Nai it was called, were hostile to them. Now, again, whether they were communists or allies of the North Vietnamese or members of the Viet Cong, I don't know. But they were all hostile. And the soldiers knew this because they went when they would leave their fire bases, they would uh, be shot at by snipers, they would encounter booby traps, they would encounter mines, and then they would suffer casualties. And of course, in the, after the operation was over, they would return to their fire base where they were safe. But it, from the soldier's point of view, it's very difficult to identify who, a counter, who an insurgent is and who isn't, especially when the entire population is hostile to you. So I think that kind of sets the frame for what happened at Belai. And it also gives us some level of pointers to the difficulties that the IDF will be having in Gaza. And then that's before you deal with their kind of collective rage as to the Hamas outrage. So I think this framing is actually very good. I think um, just, just to interrupt there for a second, I, I'm not an expert on what's going on in Gaza or Israel, but I can say this. 
every time a, a great power has tried to occupy another country, after World War II, they have run into this same problem. And of course, they don't call it occupation because they're nominally there to help some force. So in the case of the United States and South Vietnam, they were there to help the South Vietnamese. But in order to help the South Vietnamese, they had to invade South Vietnam. And similarly, you might say of the Israelis, I don't know. They're there to help the Palestinians, for all I know that they are. But what they've done is they've invaded Gaza. And from the point of view of Gazans, just like from the point of view of South Vietnamese, they have to wonder why they're here. They're not like, they're not Palestinians. They're not Vietnamese. They're foreigners. And they're foreigners with guns. And again, another thing that these great powers or powers try to do is convince the locals that they are really there to help them. And this is a hearts and minds campaign. So we would tell the South Vietnamese, we're really here to help you. And then the South Vietnamese, a typical South Vietnamese peasant would ask, okay, great, you're here to help us, but you keep blowing things up and you killed my uncle. So I, I don't really understand how you're here to help us if you're blowing things up and you killed my uncle. And you mm -hmm. can see how even if they don't have communist sympathies, they might become hostile to the American forces, which they did. And similarly with the Israelis. Again, I'm not an expert on the situation, but I can say if you invade somebody's country or territory and you are a foreigner, they're going to wonder why you're there. And you're, you're going to face hostility and a lot of it. And this makes ordinary military operations, what we might call ordinary military operations, very difficult because you can't tell friend from foe. And is it more difficult if you have a young conscript army? So we're not talking about professional soldiers. I wouldn't, I, I don't, you, you know, in, in the case of Vietnam, one of, the, one of the things people don't realize about Vietnam is most people volunteered. Uh, it's true there was a draft, but I think if you take the entire, we sent 2 million soldiers to Vietnam in total, most of them are volunteers. A good portion of them, of course, were drafted and, and sent. And of course, they're young men, generally. And young men are, you could talk a lot about young men. In the case of the My Lai Massacre, though, I, I wouldn't put the primary blame if we can speak in those terms, for the massacre on those soldiers, that is, on the, the ordinary, we would call them conscripts or volunteers, the people that held very low rank. In the case of the My Lai Massacre, the people responsible were the officers. And I can talk a little bit about that. I place the blame for the, the massacre squarely on the shoulders of the people that led the unit that conducted the massacre. Marshall, before we go into exactly the, the events of March 16th, give us the cliff notes and give us a real sense of the conflict at the time. Because I think by early 1968, the American military is aware it's in a bit of a quagmire and the war is playing out on the televisions of Americans at home uh, and things are not going well. So I'm, I'm in your hands. Take the listener there. Sure. In early 1968, the cardinal event, the principal event is the Tet Offensive, which really caught the Americans by surprise. They didn't realize that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese could mount an offensive all over South Vietnam, but they did, and this shocked the Americans. The Americans had been talking about light at the end of the tunnel, to use Westmoreland's phrase. After the Tet Offensive, it didn't look like there was light at the end of the tunnel anymore. However, as has been amply shown by lots of historians, the Tet Offensive was a disaster for the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong because they came out into the open and there they met the American forces, which is just what the American forces wanted. And the American forces proved to be very successful in killing them. 
from a purely military point of view, March 1968 was not a particularly bad time for the United States and the South Vietnamese um, because they had really backfooted the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Now, as you point out, the Tet Offensive itself really shocked people. And this did cause uh, a shift in American opinion about Vietnam. And so uh, it is the moment at which you really see popular opinion turn against the war. So that's the general context in which the, the massacre occurs. Tell us about Lieutenant William L. Callie Jr. Yeah, one of the things about Callie is he's often thought as to be responsible for the massacre. And it is true that he did commit war crimes and he did uh, round people up and shoot them. There's no question about this. But one of the things that's been said about Callie is that he was a, a terribly deficient second lieutenant. However, if you look at the documents, he was not. He was pretty typical of second lieutenants in the American army in South Vietnam in 1968. There was nothing that really made him different than any of the other second lieutenants in his cohort. In fact, we have fitness reports that were written about Cali that show him to be above average, as one of them states. It's not as if, as some people have argued, that the army was scraping the bottom of the barrel and putting people in charge of troops who should not have been in charge. Cali, although he did do this, he was not deficient from the point of view of the army. He may not have been the greatest commander or second lieutenant, but he certainly wasn't the worst. Um, the person that I point to as most responsible for the massacre is somebody that you probably never heard of, and his name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker, because he was in charge of the unit that conducted the March 16th assault on Milai in 1968. He planned it, and he executed it. And it's really the way in which he planned it that gives you the key to understanding why the massacre occurred. And I can talk a little bit about that if you like. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Mr. Poe? Yes. We've set this up. What are the 
the operational decision which lead to the massacre of between 347 or 504 unarmed South Vietnamese citizens? Yeah, to understand why it happened, you really have to go back before March 16th. On February 13th and February 23rd, 1968, Barker had mounted two previous attacks against the My Lai area, or Pinkville, as they called it. And on paper, these two attacks seemed to be very successful. He said that he had killed, in total, 155 VC and had only taken six U.S. casualties. This is a phenomenal kill ratio, and people wondered about it. How could it be the case that Task Force Barker, which is the unit involved that he headed, uh, have such an astounding victory? So it was already a little bit suspicious. Then you add to that fact that in his reports, he said that having killed 155 VC, he only captured six weapons. And his commanders, that is the people above him in the chain of command, Samuel Coster and Andy Lipscomb, they ask him about this. People said, okay, you say you killed all these Viet Cong, uh, but where are their weapons? You would think that there would be more weapons. And he did not have an explanation for this other than saying they're very good at hiding weapons or locals had taken the weapons and so on and so forth. This all looked very suspicious to his peers in the Americal Division or in the 11th Brigade because he was part of the 11th Brigade. And uh, there are really a number of possibilities. One is that he simply lied about having killed 155 VC on February 13th and February 23rd. The other is the people he killed were not VC. That is, they were civilians, or they were, as they would call them, VC sympathizers. This is a term that they invented in order to identify elements of the population that were hostile to U.S. forces and probably sympathetic to the VC. So there's a lot of talk about this. What had happened on February 13th and February 23rd? Now, Barker was a very ambitious guy, and this is also an important element of the story. He was one of many ambitious career officers in Vietnam. The best way to make rank, that is to get a higher rank, is to do very well in the field. And he wanted to please his superiors. So it could be the case that on February 13th and February 23rd, he lied about the number of VC he had killed. I think that's the most likely scenario. Um, It could be the case that he had killed a lot of civilians. I don't think that is a likely scenario. Had that been the case, the North Vietnamese would have used that as propaganda, and we more or less know that they didn't. This brings us to March 16th. He wants to go back down there again, and he wants to attack My Lai again. But he doesn't know where the VC are, and it's one particular unit, actually, that he's interested in. He doesn't know where this unit is. Miraculously, uh, what happens is his intelligence officer tells him that this unit is in Milai itself. Now, in later investigations, the army asked the person that told him this, where did you get this intelligence? And they could not trace the thread. They did not know where it came from. And obviously, this is quite suspicious as well, because it raises the possibility that he made it up. Now, he may or may not have made it up, but it is certainly the case that this bit of intelligence, that this entire VC unit was in Milai, was incorrect. Then he says something that is completely bizarre to Barker. He says that uh, there will be no civilians in Milai on the morning of March 16th. Now, 
when he was questioned about, about this after the the massacre was uncovered by the army authorities, he says that he just knew this was the case because he knew they would be in, at market, he said, that they would leave the village and they would go to market. And thus what you would have in Milai 4 on the morning of March 16th was this large VC unit and no civilians. This is exactly what Barker wanted to hear. Because remember, he had been concerned about civilian casualties before, and the United States Army was generally concerned about civilian casualties. They wanted to minimize them, partially because it's against the regs to shoot civilians, and also because it's bad for business. There are lots of journalists in Vietnam that would you know, want to uncover such a thing. So he's told the two things that he really wants to hear. One, that this entire VC unit is in My Lai, and two, there'll be no civilians there. And then he plans this operation. And the operation is predicated on this idea that My Lai 4 is essentially a VC strong point, that there won't be any civilians there, and that this is their chance to destroy, once and for all, this VC unit that he's been hunting for a couple of months. Now, again, all of this was incorrect. The unit was not there, and there were lots of civilians when they got there. But he designed the operation as if they were not. And so what does he tell his um, commanders, one of whom was Ernest Medina, and another one was William Calley? He tells them that this is essentially a VC fortress, there are going to be no civilians there, and you should destroy the village and kill everyone in it. These were essentially his orders for March 16th. And in a way, that's what they did. So I would say he bears primary responsibility for what happened because he issued these orders. He was the one that characterized the situation in such a way that it made it seem as if there would be no civilians there. And the soldiers under his command acted accordingly. But I'm a little bit confused, though. Because he, he tells his soldiers, we need to go in and take out this detachment of the Viet Cong. That I completely understand. And they're going to be pumped, for want of a better word, to go, they're about to go into combat. But they're going to see that this is women and children. What are we missing in the cold light of day between identifying that this is a combat necessity to wipe out the Viet Cong, then seeing grandmothers, grandfathers, small children, people who obviously aren't enemy combatants and who are not carrying weapons. I understand the label of sympathizers, but surely when American combat troops are faced with grandfathers and small children, these just aren't. What leads to that continued yeah, well, it's a, massacre? It, it's a reasonably complicated story. So on the morning of March 16th, they arrived by helicopter outside Milai 4. Now, they had already prepped the village with artillery. And this is another giveaway that Barker thought that it was a VC fortress. He would not have shelled the village had he thought there would be a lot of civilians there. That was definitely against the regs. But he did it again, on the pretext that there are no civilians there and it's a VC fortress. So the VC are dug in there. They need to be essentially softened up by artillery. So they land outside Milai 4. It was called 4. Uh, at 8 o'clock on March 16th. 
And what they expected to happen, what should have happened, given the way he characterized the situation, is they should have received a lot of fire from the village. Because if a whole VC 11th, well, actually it's the 48th VC battalion, if they're in the village, they're going to fire at you. But there was no fire. So they get there, and it's pretty quiet. And I say pretty quiet, it's not entirely quiet. There were VC in the area. And we know this from the testimony. We, the people that saw them were essentially helicopter pilots who saw them fleeing the village. And they're taken under fire, and they are armed. And some of them are killed, and some of them aren't. There aren't very many of them. But the, the important point is that they were shocked that once they arrived outside the village, they weren't receiving any fire at all. Now, that could have been the end of it right there. And this is important. It could have, Bark could have said, I was wrong. They should be firing at us. There should be a lot of them. We should be have made contact by now. We have not. And so we're going to proceed in a, di in a different way. And this would have been standard operating procedure. But that's not what he did. What he did was is he ordered an assault on the village as if he had received fire. They were also 100 yards away from the village, so it's not clear what they saw at this time. They did see people. They weren't clear on who those people were. But you have to delve into the details here. One of the things the United States Army do, as does, it still does this, is it's called reconnaissance by fire. And essentially what this means is you shoot at areas where you think the enemy is in order to get them to shoot back and thereby re reveal their position. And that's what they did. They started to fire into the village. Because again, according to them, the people in the village are Viet Cong. That's what they've been told. And so they start to fire into the village and they move toward the village. It becomes increasingly clear that even when they fire into the village, now obviously it's hard to hear because everybody's firing, that nobody's firing back. And th there are reports among the soldiers that they, they understood something was wrong, that it wasn't the picture that had been painted for them. So once they actually get into the village, they're still firing and they are taking under fire. Vietnamese peasants. But this only lasts about 10 minutes. Some of them fire and some of them don't. Now, again, these are all self-reports. Some of the soldiers who were interviewed by the Pierce Commission, this huge army investigation, said they, they realized that these people were not combatants, that they might be VC sympathizers, but they were not going to shoot them. That was against the regs. They weren't going to do it. Others did. And we can actually be pretty specific about who said they did and who said they didn't. But after about 10 minutes, it became clear to Medina, and he was really the person at charge on the ground, that things weren't the way that Barker had presented them, that there weren't really any VC in the village. Or if there were, they were very well hidden. And this was a possibility as well. It could be the case that the VC were in the village, that they were exercising really significant fire control. That is, they weren't firing until they could see the whites of their eyes, and they might be in the next hooch. So they didn't know. But after about 10 minutes, uh, Barker issues an order to Medina to start rounding the villagers up. And that's what they do. And this also is standard operating procedure in Vietnam. They, they realize that they're not in contact and they start to round the villagers up. Now, a lot of Vietnamese have already been killed. So, Marshall, just so, so from the beginning of the operation to when they were rounding up the villagers, how long is that now? 10, 15 minutes. 
Okay. 10, 10, it all happens minutes. very quickly. Yeah, it all happens okay. very quickly. Yeah. But they come to realize after 10, 15 minutes that the, the situation is not what it was. Now, again, this is from the point of view of the soldiers, this is a great relief. From the point of view of the officers, this is not a great relief. Because what Barker and, and Medina wanted was a big victory. They wanted to find the VC in that village. They desperately wanted to because uh, they wanted to report back to their superiors that they had defeated the 48th VC battalion. But they realized very quickly that something wasn't the way that it had been portrayed by Barker. It's also interesting to note that this is the point at which the cover-up begins. Medina, Captain Medina, who's the head of C Company, that is the actual company attacking Milai, he begins to issue reports saying that he has killed VC. He knows they are not VC. He issues these reports back to what's called the TAC, the Tactical Operation Command. We, we have good documents that show him doing this. So he's already covering up what happened. After this 10 to 20 minute period of wild killing, this stops. Because they realize that the, the 48th VC is not in that village. So the, then what happens is bizarre uh, by pretty much anybody's lights. He orders Callie who's in charge of the first platoon to round up groups of, of Vietnamese peasants, which he does. Uh, then, and this is the part that's particularly strange, he gets it in his idea that they have to be killed. And I, I don't have a good explanation for this. I, I really don't. I can tell you what Callie said. Callie said that he was under pressure from Medina to move through the village onto their next objective. And he says that Medina told him to take care of them. This is very vague. Now, ordinarily what would have happened is that they would round these villagers up and then they would interrogate them and they would search for weapons and so on and so forth to find out exactly what the disposition of the VC was in this village. That's also important to remember, this was VC controlled area and everybody knew this. The VC and the North Vietnamese, they, they had officials in this area. The South Vietnamese officials would not go into this area. So it was very hostile to the Americans and more or less pro-VC. But in any event, he does round them up and move them out of the village. And then in at least two groups we know, he orders his soldiers to shoot them. And again, these are women and children, old men, women, and children for the most part. Uh, he orders them to shoot them. Now, then another interesting thing happens in the sense that some of the soldiers refuse outright. They just say they won't do it. Other soldiers say they will. And this is the really crucial moment in the massacre and and the one that is most disturbing because there was no reason for this at all. Clearly none on on any grounds. The soldiers that refuse the order, do we have any idea of the percentage of those soldiers and how many soldiers say no? There, there are about 100 men, about 70 in Milai 4, and about another. There are about 100 men in the village, including officers and things like this. And they're scattered all over the village. So only actually a few of them participate in the organized killing. That is where the groups are rounded up and then shot. And by a few, I mean under 10 probably were involved in that phase of the massacre. Again, it's very hard to say because when they were questioned, by the Pierce Commission, this is the Army Commission that was tasked with trying to find out what happened. They they could have lied, and we just don't know. But m- many of them were forthcoming, surprisingly forthcoming, about having shot uh, these Vietnamese civilians, and they always say the same thing. 
and, and this is also of some interest and bears on our earlier conversation, the investigator would say, why did you shoot these civilians? And then the soldier, the U.S. soldier would say, how do you know there were civilians? As far as I know, they were VC sympathizers. So the people that when we go out into the countryside, shoot at us and lay mines and set booby tracks. You don't know there were civilians. They, they, they could be very dangerous. And you hear this again and again from the soldiers. They're like, no, these people were hostile to us. I don't know that they were civilians. It's true they weren't armed. They represented a danger to us. Now, again, there's a lot of cover your ass here, obviously. But I think they generally felt that these people were very hostile because they probably were very hostile. Now, they, they posed no threat and should not have been killed. That's clear. It was a war crime. Marshall, again, I just wanted to paint the picture, right? I'm, what, 19, I'm 20, I'm in the middle of the jungle, but I'm part of the Company C, the 1st Battalion of the 20th Infantry Regiment, 11th Brigade. How long had they been on active duty by then? Are, are they I don't know fresh how long they've been in active duty. No, they'd been in, they had been in country for, I think, four months at this time. They, they were pretty seasoned. Now, they hadn't been on operations quite like this one, because they hadn't been flown in by helicopter, but they had been in this area several times on February 13th and February 23rd, definitely. And they had conducted a lot of, a lot of patrols through this area, which is where they met the snipers and the booby traps and so on and so forth. And they came to understand that pretty much anybody they met who was Vietnamese in Quang Nai province was dangerous. So they were very suspicious of all of the locals, which is why they come back to this excuse. It's really an excuse for murder, they could have been dangerous, and they might be dangerous later. You cannot be sure in this context whether the, the, the woman that you let go today is not going to set a mine or a booby trap tomorrow. This is the way they saw it, or at least what they said about it. It's as few as 10 soldiers, but we don't know, right? If it's as few as 10 soldiers who end up killing up to 500 unarmed South Vietnamese civilians, how do we then excuse the rapes that then went on? Yeah. First, let me say uh, about the 500 figure. I, I don't go into detail to try to count because from my perspective, one is too many. But that 500 figure, which you see a lot, uh, is quite dubious. What the army says is 128. <laughs> that's not bad enough. On my research, it's what seems to be accepted is anywhere between 347 to 504. So even if we take it at the lower end, 347, that's 347 people who were murdered in cold blood. But that still doesn't excuse the rape because that seems to me much yeah, I mean, more it, yeah. meditated and... Again, I, I don't know how many. It was a lot. The rapes which occurred were actually quite common, unfortunately. There were several rapes. They did not take place in My Lai for itself. They took place in a village which is next to My Lai for called Binte. And this was a village where they thought the VC might be. So a couple hours into the operation, Barker ordered a detachment to go to Binte and to see if there were the VC there. They did actually find evidence of VC on the way there. They get to Binte, and then again, they find the same thing. They don't find any armed VC at all. 
They do search the, this is really a, it's a very small village. They do search the village and then several, and the men committed several rapes. When, and we, we know about this for a couple of reasons, but one is the person in command of that unit who was, his name's Michaels. When he found out about it on the ground, he stopped it immediately. He's, yes, he stopped it immediately. No massacre seems to have occurred in Binte, although Vietnamese civilians were definitely killed. At least we, that's what they report. The, the American soldiers report that several Vietnamese were killed. And then, as I say, these rapes occurred. Or as I would rather put it, they were committed by the, the U.S. soldiers. We know, Marshall, that specifically, let's say, the conflicts in Africa, the rape is used as a, a way of cowering a population. Was this, and you said that the commanding officer put stopped it immediately. To, to the best of your ability, why did those soldiers and that detachment go and rape those people? Was it a case of this is beyond the, the sight and the writ of, of, of commanders? Was this just a case of ill, a symptom of the ill discipline of this unit? How widespread was rape as a feature of the American uh, army in, in Vietnam? Was this, was this fundamentally just cultural? I can't really answer that question. I can say that in the case of this particular unit, that some of the soldiers identify, and that they're actually incredibly forthcoming about this, that there were certain men in the unit. Um, now, Task Force Parker itself has 500 people in it. Company C has 100 men in it. They were just bad actors. And a lot of soldiers will say, yeah, this guy, Smith, he was a bad actor. He did all kinds of bad things. And we know that Smith, I just made that up, was a bad actor because it's corroborated by other soldiers in their testimony. That there were certain members of the unit that were, they simply, they were not very professional. Let's put it that way. And we know that, again, because of the testimony. A South Vietnamese official, the military chief of Quang Nai province, today denied charges that American soldiers on the ground executed several hundred villagers in March of 1968. The province chief said the civilians died in air and artillery strikes that leveled the village after a number of Americans had been killed there by Viet Cong snipers. The villagers' version of the incident was given by survivors yesterday. They said a patrol of 100 Americans stormed into the hamlet, drove all the residents out of their huts, then opened fire with automatic weapons. Two American soldiers, one an officer, the other an enlisted man, are being held in this country in connection with the case, but neither has been brought to trial. The Army's investigation apparently was touched off by letters written by a former soldier who was not, however, an eyewitness to the incident. His name is Ronald L. Reitenauer. The story that I heard from was that Task Force Barker, the task force that his company was a one, one of three companies in, had and allegedly massacred everybody in the village. Ridenauer explained why he called the story to Washington's attention. I wanted to see action taken. I wanted to see the people who are responsible arrested. I think that the people who are primarily responsible have not been arrested. I think the people who are being arrested now are merely the pawns of the game. They're the people who, unfortunately, lack the presence of mind to refuse to execute this order. Let, let's move on to the exposure and the truth about the massacre. One year later, an investigative journalist 
uh, an army whistleblower is going to expose this. How and why does he do this? And then how does this lead to the public outrage and the revelation that the massacre uh, took place and the cover-up of the massacre? Yeah, I I don't really deal with that in my book, but I can tell you what I know from having read other books about it, because my book is just about the operation. As I say, the cover-up began during the operation itself, literally while it was going on. While these people were being murdered, we know that Medina, for example, was issuing false reports. At the end of the day, actually midday, a fellow named Hugh Thompson, who was a warrant officer, a helicopter pilot, he saw civilians being killed, and he reported it to his superiors. This is in a different chain of command. That, that went nowhere. Then, of course, after you do something like this, after you conduct an operation of this magnitude, you have to issue reports. You have to write a report about what happened. And we know that several, I would call them conspirators, and that would be Barker and Medina, and a few other people, wrote a report that was more or less entirely fictitious. And what they said was they'd killed 128 VC in Milai and then moved on to their next position. And this this enters the record. But the, the point is a lot of people knew what had happened. Again, at least 100 people knew what had actually happened in that village. And one of them was Rod Ryden. He was the one that wrote his Congress people and said, look, I know that in this particular instance uh, that Americans had murdered Vietnamese civilians. Interestingly, once he this comes to the attention of these Congress people, the army starts an investigation, and they quickly discover what happened. This is six months before it hits the news, and they begin. This is when they arrest Callie and other people. Um, Barker incidentally died about a year after it happened, so he couldn't be arrested. They arrest Medina, they arrest Callie, and they start a judicial procedure against them. And again, this is interesting because the army issued press releases about it. They they said that that they had filed charges and were investigating an incident that occurred on March 16th in Milai. It actually appeared in the New York Times. It was a small and not entirely forthcoming uh, piece, but it said that the army had uh, started proceedings against against Medina and Cali, and, and this incidentally is is how Seymour Hirsch learns about it, and other journalists learned about it as well. They saw this; the, the army said that they were investigating a possible atrocity that occurred on March 16, nineteen sixty eight, in Milai. And then they start to do some digging, and its magnitude comes out. So the, this massacre is going to really help shape perceptions back home in America that this war is not only unwinnable, but also unjust. The American GI isn't seen as this a sentinel trying to spread democracy, but actually it shows that American troops can be and actually have been incredibly brutal in terms of the dealing with the populace. How important do you think that this actually is in terms of the winding down of the war? And and also, I know you don't really cover it, it's beyond the purview of your book, 
but in terms of, of the whistleblower himself, because he has a kind of interesting post-Vietnam life, doesn't he? Uh, there's Thompson. He was a helicopter pilot. And there's Ridenhauer. And I, I don't know much about Ridenhauer except to say that he became very involved in the anti-war movement. But what it had already generally been known, well, it had already been known that uh, Vietnam was, as they used to say at the time, a different kind of war. It was not uh, like the Germans against the Americans in the Battle of the Bulge. And that things were being done that you ordinarily wouldn't do, and that the conditions of fighting were particularly difficult. I, I think most Americans knew this. What made me lie different is the magnitude of it. It wasn't as if there wasn't reporting about atrocities committed by Americans before Milai. There was. And actually, some of it's quite famous. But I think for most Americans, they said, the war is a very dirty business. And if we're going to achieve our objectives, we have to stomach things we ordinarily wouldn't stomach. But Milai was just on a different magnitude. And that upset people. And, and I should also say, about Milai particularly, it really was of a different magnitude. Whether it was 100 or 500 Vietnamese civilians killed, we don't have any other examples of atrocities of this kind of that magnitude. That is to say that we, I don't know any other, I don't know of any other atrocities that were really like Milai. It, it, I don't know if it was unique, but it was certainly quite different than other kinds of atrocities that had been uncovered by the press, and then later the army itself uncovered. So the, the magnitude of it made it different in the American mind, and for good reason. So you, you do talk about another incident which happens in 2005, the Haditha killings. Um of which a squad of U.S. Marines killed 24 innocent Iraqis. And this is in 2005, and the news breaks in March 2006. You do compare that. What hadn't the American military learned from 1968? So a similar thing could happen in 2005. Yeah, I don't think it's only the American military. The Soviets tried the same thing. And it, essentially to go back to this idea of a war of occupation, if you occupy somebody's country and you create fire bases and you send your soldiers out into the countryside in order to hunt for counterinsurgents, what you're going to face is a hostile population. And this is going to make it very difficult to conduct ordinary military operations because you can't tell, from the soldier's point of view, you can't tell who's a combatant and who isn't. And you're going to develop a kind of better safe than sorry mentality. And this is going to result, probably, if the soldiers are badly led. And this is really the case at My Lai. When I, people ask me, what's the shortest thing you can say about the My Lai massacre? I say, the soldiers at My Lai were badly led. And full stop, they were very badly led. If you have a case where you have an ambitious commander, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker, and if he thinks he needs to have a big victory, and if he thinks he knows where the enemy are, he is uh, going to conduct an operation that is, if he doesn't use good judgment, it's going to result in civilians being hurt. It is almost inevitable. The lesson is don't invade other people's countries. 
<laughs> it's just as simple as that because it's not ever going to turn out well. You're going to get situations like this. The Army is a big organization. There are a lot of different kinds of people in it. Some commanders are very good and follow the regs, and some aren't. And in a situation where you have somebody like Barker, who was fantasizing about what was in Me Life War, well, it's going to end very badly for everybody involved. Do you think that you might have strayed maybe too much on the side of understanding the operational difficulties in the kind of supposed or actual kind of fog and war in your analysis with your retelling you seem to be pretty dispassionate or do you believe that the outrage that people have let's say from the distance of whether it's 50 years or let's say contemporaneously back in 1968 or let's say 1969 when, when the news came out it's very easy to have that if you don't have a machine gun in your hands, you're not in the jungles of Vietnam and you're sat, let's say, in Iowa watching this on TV. As I understand that the historian's job and the job that I undertook when I started the project is to find out what happened and why it happened. And I've done my best to do that. If you're asking me, was it wrong? Yes, of course it was wrong and it was a war crime. And there's no question about this. I think I did a good job of reconstructing what happened, and I think I understand why it happened. But in terms of, if you make the distinction between is and ought, I was trying to find out what happened. I was interested in the is. The ought is pretty obvious. You shouldn't be involved in killing civilians. Full stop. Do you, do you think that unit got the appropriate punishment, disgrace, that it deserved. Again, I didn't actually research that. What I can say is that perpetrators were not brought to justice. There's no question about this. Medina was charged and had a lengthy trial, and he was never punished. Callie was found guilty of murder, but then the president intervened, and he, he was released, and then finally they gave up on prosecuting him. Uh, and I guess I would also say that at the time, there was very little taste in the United States for prosecuting these people, at least among, in the mainstream, I would say. It was clear the war was being lost. It was clear that we were, and Nixon had already said this in 1970, we were getting out of Vietnam. We had sent these young men to fight in a losing cause. I think most people just wanted them home. What do I think? I think that they all should have been brought up on charges <laughs> and they should serve lengthy prison sentences. But that was not what, what people wanted to see. That's not what people wanted to see in 1970. They wanted them home. It seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Thank you, Marshall, for taking us through a very difficult and ugly episode in America's very recent history. 
tell us the name of the book again and I was going to say and tell us where people can actually get it from but we all know you can get it from Amazon but tell us the name of the book again yeah the name of the book is The Reality of the My Lai Massacre and the Myth of the Vietnam War and it's from Cambria Press and it was just out and if you type my name in My Lai you'll you'll find it yeah it's also part of the new books network tell us about the new books network and dear listener if ever you weren't aware of a, a network of literary uh, goods most definitely you need to check this one out i'm a former historian more than anything else i wrote this book in my spare time over the last 10 years my day job is essentially running the new books network and the new books network is uh simply a place where we interview authors of scholarly books about their scholarly books and so what you will find there is professors and researchers and journalists talking about the research that they've done and the books in which that research is printed we've published 23,000 that's not a typo 23,000 episodes and so you can find almost anything we produce 70 new ones a week So if you're interested at all in hearing what professors have to say and what they write in their book, then you should go to the New Books Network. There you go. An endorsement from Mid-Atlantic. Go to New Books Network. <laughs> Thanks, and Roy. when you when you get there, if you can, there will be no other Mid-Atlantic this week, dear sweet listener. We're not going to be doing our regular Thursday show with the panel looking at contemporaneous US and UK politics. For the simple reason it's thanksgiving a day which means absolutely nothing to one half of the atlantic but quite a lot <laughs> to the other and considering that i'm in america that means i have to have the day off we will resume our twice weekly output next week you'll have the panel next thursday and i think we're going to try and delve into argentinian politics at the start of next week so if like me you're somewhat surprised by the new president of argentina and want to discover more about him a mid-atlantic is most definitely the place for that you can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com don't forget you can show us your support by going on to apple podcast and writing us review now uh, just before i do go There is now a new website which actually hosts the podcast. It's on my own personal site. It's royfield.com forward slash mid-Atlantic. Royfield.com forward slash mid-Atlantic. Uh, please go there and listen to the episodes and, and also bookmark it because these, this SEO stuff means that more people then will come through onto the website and onto the podcast. Marshall, anything else we need to know about what you're up to at the moment, sir, before we go? Um, no, not really. I just want to wish everybody a great Thanksgiving if you're on the side of the Atlantic that cares about Thanksgiving. <laughs> There you go, listener. If you are stateside, have a great Thanksgiving. If you're in the UK, sorry about the lack of a second show this week. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? 
All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.